Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Welcome to Space Junk. I'm your host, Annie Hanmer, and I'm doing a PhD in International Cooperation in Space at the University of Sydney School of History and Philosophy of Science. This week, I was due to give you part two of the conversation on space espionage with Dr. Vince Holton. But for me, and for many Australians, bushfires have been front of mind. While family members battled fires and managed cuts to power, phone lines, and melting water pipes, I puzzled over my apparent helplessness. I go to space conferences regularly where there's talk of integrated communications, remote sensing, and Earth observation. But when disaster struck, we've still been completely at the mercy of nature. Or have we? I tracked down the best expert I know to tell me about the ongoing bushfire situation in Australia and how space-enabled technologies can assist efforts to predict, manage, and assess the impact of bushfires. Professor John Hanmer is an Emeritus Professor with the RMIT School of Science and has qualifications and experience in human geography, economics, and law. He chairs the Scientific Committee of the Integrated Research on Disaster Risk Program of the International Council of Science and the United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction. He's on a number of Australian advisory bodies which cover climate change adaptation, disaster risk and resilience, and most recently, the National Vulnerability Profile Project. In addition to these positions, John is also my uncle, a role in which he excels, particularly in his provision of large quantities of chocolate. The opinions expressed by me and by John on this podcast are in our private capacity and do not reflect the views of any organisations with which we are associated. Information on how you can help our Rural Fire Service and other organisations in the current bushfire threat can be found at the end of the podcast. I'm here with Professor John Handmer, who is Australia's top researcher in emergency management, according to The Australian in 2019, and also happens to be my uncle. John, thank you so much for making time to talk about bushfires. My pleasure. So I wanted to start by asking you to explain, in your own words, what you study, how you came to specialise in natural disasters, and your journey through this academic field. Yeah, well, I suppose I should start by saying, like most Australian researchers, I think we need the funds to do our work. The reality is there has been quite a lot of funding for bushfire research, and before that, flood research, and that, that's one reason, perhaps the main reason I got heavily involved. But before that, as an undergraduate, 
uh, a long time ago, in the 70s, um, there was an intense interest in Australia in all aspects of, of natural hazards and disaster management. And this coincided with the end of a very large program of work in the United States to look at the state of the art in hazard management, disaster management, and the research gaps. That was all published. So these things coincided. I did my honours in this area, then a master's in North America and, and so on, and worked at the Flood Hazard Centre in London for a while. And so as a budding researcher, there was a lot of interest and support from practitioners and policymakers, uh, as well as other researchers. And this, this was very reinforcing to, to think that perhaps what I was doing was immediately, in some cases, it looked like it was immediately applicable or wanted. Of course, that's very naive, perhaps looking back on it, but still, it, it was very motivating. Absolutely. And then more recently, I know you've worked on some projects um, around some of the really severe bushfires, maybe over the last decade. How did you come to be involved in those and what, what were you specifically working on? It's a slightly odd story. I, uh, I was overseas working in England and I was actually in the, in the Solomon Islands and Vanuatu and so on, working part-time from there. And I decided that we're coming back to Australia, I needed to I needed some a job here in this area, and the Emergency Management Australia, then a, a sort of part of Defence Department, agreed to sponsor me in part, or not pay my salary, but give me some research money if I could find somewhere to sit. And that's why I ended up at RMIT, and they sponsored the Emergency Management Australia with actually a lot of the emergency agencies from around Australia, sponsored a research group there which I ran under their guidance, this uh, occurred at about the same time as suddenly there was a lot of interest in fire research after the fires around Sydney and the creation of a bushfire cooperative research centre. And this, uh, the, the funds I had and the little group I had sort of merged into that cooperative research centre. And that was in, the, that was in about 2003 or four, And so that's how I got into, totally into fire and, and the human dimensions of fire. And we, we did a lot of interesting policy work. And then with Black Saturday in 2009, uh, by then I guess I was reasonably well known in the fire sector or fire industry across Australia and also um, across a pretty big research group. And um, after the Black Saturday, we were asked, the, the uh, task group of fire and related agencies from across Australia wanted to do a certain amount of research, post-fire research. And one of the areas was they called human dimensions research, in other words, what did people do? What sort of things seemed to work? What, what did they feel about the fires and what, for them, what were the problems and issues and so on? And so myself and a fire agency person from uh, Tasmania, uh, Damien Tkilley, were co-directors of that Human Dimensions Research. It needed someone from outside the state. It was for outside Victoria to lead it, it was felt. So we did, uh, we did a lot of interviews and research and surveys on that and we did a number of pieces of work for the Royal Commission as well, separate to all that, on the fatalities, which has all been published and so on. So what do people think about fires? How do they respond to fires? If I can ask you to summarise all of that research in a pithy statement. A pithy statement. Uh, okay, I'm going to do a little bit of, I'm going to respond to that uh, by going back to not long after 2009 and then today because I think they're different. After 2009, we, so we, we can be fairly certain about what people thought. Uh, people uh, generally found it pretty terrifying. That's not surprising. 
I think it's really interesting to, to contemplate that about 6,000, these figures are very rough, 6,000 houses within the fire zone of Black Saturday, roughly. We might have that wrong, but that's what we used. And about 2,000 of them burnt down. Um, that means, and there were fatalities at about 50. So it sort of helps to put it in perspective. And there were about uh, roughly half the houses had people uh, staying to defend the property or, or people who said they were staying. They might not have been what we we're doing what we would call defence. And some of those people came and went, which is also the interesting thing. People tended to manage their personal risk by, by not necessarily being at the property when they felt it was at its worst or going and helping stock or whatever, or people who are having more of a hard time in a neighbouring house. And after the fires, most people said they would do the same thing again. This was really very striking to us. And there were a lot of other issues. No, almost no one got a warning, for example, what they called a warning. Even though there have been endless warnings about the fires, people were wanting a specific one. Okay. If we take those couple of issues and go to today, I think a really positive thing is that people now get, get warnings and they're much more specific. Generally speaking, there are some times it doesn't work. But people get warnings, they tend to get them on their phones. Uh, and so it's like a specific warning for that individual household, even though it isn't. But when people have it on their phone, that can appear as if it's a personal warning. And uh, we think people pay much more attention to these. The downside is people now, we think, wait for those warnings, which could be very dangerous. So the warning scene is, is much better. Uh, and but, but we're not so sure about what people want to do because the agencies generally across Australia now want people to evacuate and leave well before the fire front arrives. It's very dangerous to leave in the middle of the fire front, but uh, what we found is the, over the majority of people tend to just be a bit indecisive and see how it evolves, how the fire evolves. I mean, why go to all the trouble of leaving and perhaps leaving stock and pets and all the rest of it or even your workplace, because so many people work at home and we overlook that, uh, if it wasn't necessary. So there, there's, it's, a, it's a bit more mixed at the moment, and, and we feel, a lot of us feel that the message about being prepared and doing things in advance hasn't um, got through as well as it could have. But these, each fire, uh, we hope things improve, and mostly they do. So I would also like to point out that evacuation is not risk-free. And it can be a bit irritating, not in Australia, of course, but overseas where evacuation, there have been deaths in evacuation and they're ignored in the media reporting, just so oh, no one died in the fire. I was just reading up on the more recent fires in New South Wales, and it seems that the statistics that are being reported in the newspaper um, are quite shocking. So I think we're up to about 476 homes lost in New South Wales. Now, for comparison, last season, they report that there were only 37 lost. And in recent memory, the most homes lost in a single season was in 2013-14, where there were 248 lost. So that's already, you know, almost double the last um, most severe in terms of losses of homes. And also looking at the area that's been burnt, it's about um, 1.65 million hectares. Oh, it's phenomenal, yes. Which is enormous. I mean, it's more than the past three bushfire seasons combined in terms of the the geographic area that's been burnt. And then we're, I think, up to four deaths as of today. 
So could you provide some context for us around these statistics? Because someone like me who lives in the city, um, I read these statistics and I think, gosh, that's awful and, you know, that's a huge area. I know that it's a huge area. I can look at the statistics and say, this seems like a far worse bushfire season than previous years. And it also seems as though there are more bushfires happening earlier in the year. We're only really halfway through November. So what's your perspective on this? You know, I'm fully conscious that um, some people will think that, you know, we should, that it might be less appropriate to talk about the, the fires in a in an intellectual sense, so I, I take the view that um, there's no disrespect, and we want to learn as much as we can all the time to do better with with fire risk management, and we need to do better. Uh, just to, to pick up on some of the the statistics you you had there, uh, I think that what you're saying is right. Um, if we consider those statistics. At the time of the year we're at, as you said, mid-November, and really this started in some ways in late October, it's it's quite it's exceptional, uh, and the reason, the, especially if we look at the area burnt and the houses lost, um, it's extraordinary. We probably hasn't we haven't seen anything like it before at this time of year, at least, um, and I I think the. There's been a lot of discussion in the that I've noticed in the media about the reasons. I mean, we are. It didn't just arrive. I mean, we have a a, a very intense drought in much of New South Wales, and the and what that's done is to dry out, along with a lot of heat, has really dried out the bush and the land, and also dries out people's gardens and so on. So, the whole place uh, has can and has become a lot more flammable. Uh, and and the moisture content is really low, and as the, the moisture content of the bush and so on drops, and it becomes easier for it to catch fire and burn, and the total absence of rain in many cases. That's the fundamental reason as to why there's uh, so many fires and so widespread, and they're quite intense, along with the winds driving them. I think we also need to recognise that it's not just the the weather and climate; it's um, weather and climate driving the fires, but the, the damage is also a function of our expanded settlement. Because some of these places are very long-standing places, but there's also a lot of new development pushing into, into, into flammable bushland and, uh, and also uh, and economic activities as well going into, into more flammable or fire hazard areas. And, and it's though, that combination that has resulted in... in the, the heavy losses, that's got nothing to do with the area burnt, though, which is a indicator of just the severity of the, and extent of the fires. So I, I put it to, um, like most people who look at this, it's, it's really the, the very dry conditions, um, which has evolved over some years. And um, climate scientists at ANU have uh, made some statements that the, summers we, the last summer we had would not have been possible under the long-term climate. <clears throat> it was just, there's too big a, a difference between the average temperature, maximum temperature last summer and the long-term average maximum temperatures. So we're, we're, in that sense, in New South Wales anyway, it appears that we are at the moment in a much warmer climate regime. It might, it might change and go back, but right now that's where we're at and that's making vegetation more likely to burn. 
Yeah, I have noticed that the reporting that I've been seeing in the newspapers has been very focused on the question of, is it appropriate to talk about climate change or global warming in the context of this fire season? Um, And it's become a real political controversy. In terms of the way that people think about bushfires, in your experience, do people tend to think about them as one-off disasters in the same way that they might think about, um, you know, a really bad hailstorm that comes through? Or are we increasingly thinking of them within the context of a a warming climate? This century, anyway, we've had fires every season and quite bad fires every year or two, even if they're contained and the damages aren't too bad. Whereas historically, they've been much rarer. And I think people who think about it have come around to seeing them as a as a very regular occurrence. We've always had them, of course, but very damaging fires weren't, at least didn't appear to be anything like as common. But certainly the agency people that uh, I'm aware of, they really uh, have long thought that they're at the front line of climate change or warming conditions. All the emergency management agencies feel that because of the connection with weather extremes. But the fire, the people responding to fire and heat waves and um, in particular, Bill and in our recent round of interviews that we've done with people in uh, a number of southern states, uh, there was a very strong concern by some, by, well, all the agency people we spoke to actually, that uh, government's absolute inaction on climate change was very unfortunate for for our risk. Having said that, I have to realise that reducing carbon, which we we should do won't have any immediate impact on on the risk, but uh, there's a lot of, if we recognise that the risk is evolving and changing and getting worse fairly quickly, then we would need to think of how we're going to deal with that and how we're going to adapt to it. And up to now, uh, we've, we've adapted, I think it's reasonable to say, we've adapted by tweaking the existing system, which might not be enough. I would say it's probably not enough when we're looking at um, multiple fires, long-lasting um, over and a long fire season. Let's talk a bit about space now. So I, I asked you when I got in contact um, how firefighters use space-enabled technology to fight fires. And by that I was thinking, how much are we using satellite imagery, weather reports, satellite phones, GPS and other space-enabled technologies in the process of predicting, managing and fighting fires? Okay, well, maybe I can answer that in a couple of different ways. Very precise weather reports, precise uh, spatially and precise in terms of time, are fundamental to to modern uh, firefighting and to managing the risk from fires. There's no question about that, and and I think um, everyone in the industry would like to see uh, as much effort as possible going into that area. I mean, it's not just the technology, it's also having the skilled forecasters to interpret what the technology and and observations are saying to be able to frame that in ways that are useful for firefighters. And that is is also something that I think can be challenged when we have a very long fire season because um, I'm not sure how many uh, very skilled, experienced um, fire weather people Australia has, but it it probably isn't enough for a, a long season over a very large area. Remote sensing data from, from satellites is, is, has long been used and is used uh, intensively, actually, as part of risk assessment um, 
in the lead up to and during in the lead up to fire seasons, the lead up to summer, and also during summer. This is looking at um, the extent and type and condition of vegetation. I mean, <clears throat> for, by condition, I mean how dry the vegetation is, because this is a gives an indication of well how likely, how fast would it catch fire, how f- and how quickly would the fire burn through that. There, there are various programs that look at what the, the it's called curing, what the moisture content of that of that vegetation is. So that's a that's a very important part of it, and it's of um, of fire risk preparation and management across Australia, and it's largely dependent on on satellite imagery. <clears throat> but if we if we consider for a moment um, actual firefighting, then. Uh, and the use of the, the the use of real time satellite imagery, for example, um, it, it's at present it's it's pretty limited. Um, the Huawei satellites, the Japanese satellites, provide um, a certain amount of near real time imagery, but um, it's not generally relied on because it's not um, it's the coverage is not perfect. Uh, it has trouble seeing through smoke and cloud. And the the actual imagery can be quite patchy in terms of where people want that want the coverage. It may not be available. So so it hasn't. Uh, and there are, there are a number of of satellites that uh, global satellite systems that provide image and data images and data that are in near real time or p- real time, but in pat- very patchy way. And my understanding is that at present it's not good enough for firefighters to rely on. But what's happening instead is that as drones become more, much more sophisticated, they are being used more and more extensively, uh, and they have they have a lot of advantages in that they can go exactly where they wanted, uh, when they wanted, and they're becoming cheaper and cheaper to operate. Uh, and they have the huge advantage of being told that they can operate at night, and because the fire might be raging, although traditionally they haven't been. But the the ability of um, firefighters and firefighter agencies to actually s- to see what's happening with the fire is very limited. Um, drones uh, offer have offered a ways of uh, around that and giving much more information about what the fire is doing at night through the use of technologies that can look through smoke and 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 so on. And there's also the use of airborne radar, um, especially synthetic. Aperture radar, which gives very large coverage, and uh, has some of the same advantages. It can, it can has the ability to look through some of the obstacles that, that block currently block a lot of satellite imagery. So we can say that it's it's very widely used, but if you like space observation of one sort or another, it's very widely used. But perhaps um, the the emergence of of drone technology has to some extent, displaced some of the satellite technology. It's in the end, it'll be complementary, I think. But right now, um, the drones are very, uh, are, are pretty widely used. And how has your academic study of bushfires used satellite imagery or uh, space-enabled technologies? Well, I've worked for a while. I don't really now, but with a group at in the science department, a science school of sciences, as known at RMIT. And they have a, a group that worked on satellites and satellite technology. And one of the technologies that 
they were involved with at the margins was the so-called QZSS Japanese Next Generation GPS satellites. Now, these satellites have been launched by the Japanese and developed so that they can look down the concrete canyons in cities like Tokyo and still give precise, precise positioning to people on the street. And because it's a new generation, it's very, very accurate centimetre accuracy. But the, the great thing I thought that this technology has to offer us who are interested in disasters is that each time the, the pulse from the satellite sends, sends its positioning pulse, it can contain a very short text message or, or, or message of whatever sort, how we want to send it. It could be a map, whatever. I should point out these satellites' paths take them over Australia. But in Japan, they've been developing the use of this short messaging service within the, the um, GPS pulse for tsunami warnings, where time is absolutely critical. And so the idea is that people sitting on the beach or, or, or people fishing or whatever would um, get a message, an urgent message, um, because the satellite, the, the, the beam would know exactly where those people were and the message would be able to take that into account and tell them that they have so many minutes before the tsunami hits and where they have to go. The advantage of this is, of course, as I said, that the message knows where you are, so it can tailor the message to where you your risk. But it also is independent of the phone system. So, for example, in Japan, there was a major earthquake knocked out the phone system, the mobile phone system, the satellite message still gets to your phone and tells you the information that you would need. These two things are, of course, wonderful, potentially wonderful news for emergency managers in Australia looking at warning systems and, and for, say, fires or severe other severe circumstances where the phone system might be overloaded. It might still be functioning, but it might be overloaded. So there have been some tests and trials done using this um, this system in Australia. I'm not sure what its exact current status is. It's not in use, but it's one of a stable of really, I think, quite exciting new technologies and possibilities that are emerging. Thank you so much, John. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and uh, to get access to your insight and expertise on this topic. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for thinking of me. You've been listening to Space Junk. The New South Wales Rural Fire Service asks that anyone wishing to help people in bushfire-affected areas donate to the Australian Red Cross Disaster Recovery and Relief Fund or the Salvation Army Disaster Appeal. You can also donate to the Rural Fire Service volunteers by going to the New South Wales RFS donations page. If you have any further questions or comments, you can email me on thespacejunkpod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter or Instagram at, at Annie Hanmer. Thanks for listening.